Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. I begin with a quote this morning, a quote from Dr. James Hollis, a quote that also forms a question. If we had access to a wise sage who knew us better than we know ourselves, was invested in our well-being and in our taking greater ownership of our journeys, would it not make sense to seek the advice of that sage? Hmm. Who is the wise sage in your life? A person with profound intuition, perception. A magi, the Persians might call this person. A mensch in Yiddish or in Hebrew. A guru if they were in the far east. The Greeks called their enlightened elders the philosophos, the philosophers, the lovers of wisdom. Wisdom is not necessarily the product of education. You can have any number of letters after your name, a few diplomas on your wall, and be completely devoid of common sense or any measure of experiential learning. And some of you have worked for that person, I know. Some of the wisest people I have known in my life had no more than an eighth grade education. Scholars, they were not. Philosophers, sometimes they were. Sages, absolutely. The truest wise men and wise women that I have known. So again, who is the wise sage in your life or who has it been? Because a person can continue to instruct you long after they have passed. A parent, a trusted college professor, a mentor, an author, a therapist, a counselor. Who has been your guiding light, your grounding force? Maybe it is one person. For many of us, it is likely an amalgamation of people who have moved in and out of our lives over the years. That special teacher in elementary school. That guidance counselor during late adolescence. The older worker who taught us our trade or showed us the ropes. A coach who did far more than teach us how to swing a bat or to kick a ball. And yes, possibly even a minister or a rabbi or a priest. There are a lot of charlatans and abusers out there, but there are people whose names the world will never know that have quietly inspired others and shaped the lives of others. Their collective work, though quietly, has probably kept the world from self-destruction as they go about their lives living out and sharing the wisdom that they have gained. As an example, how many of you know who James Hollis is, the one whom I just quoted? Not many. 
And I'm not surprised. I suspect that most any crowd I speak to, unless they are all specialists in the work of Carl Jung, would not know his name. Those people, and there's one more group of people that if they are astute, they will have seen his name before because attentive watchers of the second season of Ted Lasso in episode eight, one of Hollis's books is lying on a coffee table. Now, I am an astute watcher of Ted Lasso, and I saw that tip of the hat to Hollis in that episode and immediately paused the show and did three backflips across the room. And I knew immediately that someone writing for that show, some consultant, some advisor, some set decorator, was truly earning whatever he or she was being paid. Let's go back to Dr. Hollis's quote again. If we had access, that's Dr. Hollis, if we had access to a wise sage who knew us better than we know ourselves, was invested in our well-being, in our taking greater ownership of our journeys, would it not make sense to seek the advice of that sage? Next slide, Garrett. Sorry about that. To Dr. Hollis. For me, James Hollis has been that sage, at least for the last dozen or so years. My dearest friend, David Beavers, introduced me to Hollis, and initially he was so dense. Not, I realize now that that pronoun doesn't work. Not David being dense, but James Hollis's words were so dense, so thoroughly technical in places that I could barely read three or four pages of his at a time. But I stuck with him as if committing myself to learn to speak a new language so that now I can say without embellishment whatsoever that I have found Dr. James Hollis to be the most insightful, the wisest, the most accurate assessor of human nature, the most knowledgeable practitioner of the soul that I have ever read, heard speak, or encountered in my life. If there was a sagacious meter, a sagacity ranking system, Hollis would be the greatest living wise man on the planet. Now that's subjective. That's my opinion, of course, but here I stand. Hollis has taught and studied all over the world, teaching humanities for more than 25 years. And right in the middle of his life, in his 40s, almost 50, he quit. He moved to Europe. He retrained as a Jungian analyst and has become the world's authority on Carl Jung, the man, the Jung disciplines of psychiatry, psychology, spirituality. He's 83 years old now, the author of more than two dozen books. He continues to lecture, and he has become my greatest teacher in the second half of my own life though I only know him through the words on those pages. I've been influenced by a lot of people. Clarence Jordan, Roger Williams, Richard Rohr, Janet Hagberg, Meister Eckhart, Janet Williams. These have all had profound influence on me, my theology, my attitudes, the trajectory of my life, but Hollis now holds sway. So you're asking yourself right now, if this guy is so profound and so wise What is it that he is saying that makes him the worthy wearer of such a crown? Well, I don't have time to tell you all of that today. Well, which book of his should I read? Well, that depends. I can't say for sure for you. Okay, well, what does he believe about God? That will require a pot of coffee or a bottle of some other brown substance to talk about. But I will tell you the single greatest lesson that Hollis is teaching me is this. 
most of us don't really know how to live our lives. Most of us don't really know how to live our lives. This is so because most of us are absolutely ignorant of the life within us. I believe he would say something like this. Life is not tragic because it comes to an end. Life is sometimes tragic because people truly don't start living their lives. They live the life that someone else dictates for them. That a society dictates for them. That expectation dictates for them. Not the life that each person is uniquely gifted, equipped, and mandated to live. I'll quote Dr. Hollis directly now. We all have to show up. That is, just do your best. Throw yourself into it. Find the courage and the persistence to live your life as best you can in a world that may or may not cooperate. And remember, no one is perfect. No one is ever finished. No one ever gets out of this life alive. Just live it as well as you can. That is all anyone can ask. We are here to bring our best selves to this troubled orb plunging through oceans of space. You are here to be yourself. Not through selfish injury to others, but in humble service to that possible person God intended. We are called to show up as our own flawed, clunky, awkward selves, but as ourselves. If, that is, we can discover our true selves and grant ourselves permission to really be ourselves. That is profound. You would hardly be able to find anyone who has not heard of the Nobel Prize. It's actually prizes. There are six categories each year. And the Nobel Committee has been awarding those prizes since 1901, roughly a million dollars to each recipient. And that money is from the estate of this man, Alfred B. Nobel. When he died in 1896, his will stated that all of his assets, present and future, would fund prizes for outstanding human accomplishment that make the world a better and more peaceful place. Well... Nobel was an incredibly wealthy man, but he was not one with a view toward charity. He was a ruthless businessman. He was a scientist. He was an explosive engineer. He and his father were quite literally arms dealers. They built the bombs and the mines for the Russians during the Crimean War. Alfred went on to acquire 355 explosive patents and owned 100 explosive factories. Nitroglycerin, detonators, blasting caps, smokeless gunpowder. And do you know what his most famous invention is? Anybody? Dynamite. But in 1888, Alfred's brother Ludwig died from a heart attack. And a French newspaper believed that it was Alfred who had passed away. So the newspaper wrote a blistering obituary that branded him, quote, the merchant of death, who had grown rich by developing new ways to, quote, mutilate and to kill and to kill people with more speed and efficiency than anyone who had ever lived before him. It soon became clear that Alfred was not dead. 
but not before Alfred Nobel had the jolting experience of reading his own obituary in the paper. He was horrified, realizing what his legacy would be. But he also realized that he had time to change that legacy, and he did. It appears that how he would be remembered, though, was not the driving force in the changes that he made. He didn't look outside at the world to see what he should do. He looked inside himself, and he asked this question, this life I have been living, has it been the life that I really wanted to live? See, he went right into this line of work because that was the work that was waiting on him. That was his father's work. It was the work that would be expected of him. Few people know that Alfred Nobel spoke six languages fluently, and his love for literature far exceeded his love for explosive engineering. Yes, he set some things right in the end, but he may have missed the life his true self called him to live He had been built and gifted for something completely different. I'm going to tie all this together here. Look at this elegant psalm of King David. It's today's lectionary reading. And in many ways, it is typically Davidic. The warrior poet. The shepherd made king. Overflowing with thanksgiving. As David likely has been rescued once again from some deep distress. And he calls his God, he hails his God, Yahweh, as the God above all gods. He calls on the rulers of the world to acknowledge where their power truly comes from. And of course, David sees God as his own tribal fighter. God will take the battle to David's enemies on David's behalf. These are themes found throughout all of David's songs and hymns. But there is a single line, a verse that so jumped off of the page that is unique to anything David says anywhere else. It is verse 3. On the day I cried out, you answered me. You encouraged me with inner strength. I couldn't recall that exact turn of phrase anywhere in the Old Testament And as I dove in, Hebrew scholarship confirmed, yes, there are only four uses of this phrase in the entire Hebrew Bible. The rarity of the phrase had led scholars to some disagreement on how to handle it, the last half of that second sentence. Strength of soul, courage, encouragement to my soul, make me bold. These are all common handlings of the text into English, and none of them are wrong. But what I find interesting, that the root word used here means to cause a storm. To the verse, on the day I cried out, you answered me. You encouraged me with inner strength. You provoked within me a storm. Now, that's a different kind of reading, isn't it? I'll connect this back to Hollis and back to the prayer I concluded with last week. For Hollis, it is always inward work. It is always the work of the soul. It is discovering the self and the life within us. It is the inner life that brings clarity and purpose and meaning to the outer world. And back to Paul's prayer from Ephesians 3 that I concluded with last week and more than a few people asked for the reference. So here it is and I'll give you part of it. This was my benediction last week. I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. 
I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with what? Inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him and your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. There is, if we would have it, a divine storm, a spiritual moving, an awakening within our hearts and souls to whom God has called us to be. And we can have that if we will listen for it, if we will submit to it, if we will do the hard work of looking inside, self-examination. One of the reasons this world is in the state that it is in is that we have so little self-awareness that we are projecting all of our fears and insecurities and shortcomings out onto the world. And the reason that the world today doesn't make any sense is like no other time in our history, we can't make sense of anything inside of our own hearts. And if we want to do ourselves a favor, if we truly want to live the life God has for us, we have to find the courage to live the life that we feel called to live. And this is why some people, and Hollis has his critics, they don't like James Hollis. Do you know why? They don't want to look inside for too long. They might be afraid of what they find there. They don't want to fulfill the Socratic maxim, know thyself. To do so might indeed cause a storm. It might cause upheaval. It might turn over tables and hidden secrets and never before questioned assumptions and motivations. Before the strength arises within us, we just might have to suffer. We might have to do business with our false selves, with the lives that we have been leading, the lives that others have picked out for us to live, that we simply collapsed into because it was the path of least resistance. I think every person desperately wants to live their best life possible. I think we all want meaning and purpose. I think we desperately want inner strength and the divine spirit to sustain us, to storm into our lives But just as assuredly, I think that most people won't take the risk to get those things because it means digging through layers and layers of self-immolated BS and decades of the charade and the self-betrayal to get to it. I grew up in a, and you know this, if you've listened to any, if you've listened to me for more than 15 minutes, I grew up in a religious structure that was very suspicious of inner growth. And I look back on it now and I think, how can faith, religion, be suspicious of inner growth? But it was. My tradition was conspicuous in its condemnation of anything related to psychology, therapy, or counseling. And I know some of you have had that same experience in life. Because to turn to one of these was to turn away from trusting God. Because all you need is God in the Bible, right? For a happy life, right? Hmm. And we were told, don't ever just open up your heart and mind. Guard your heart, as the scripture said, because if you don't, that's how the devil's going to get in. 
to deal with true issues of the soul beyond getting your soul to the pearly gates was more than frowned upon. It was condemned. And only years later did I come to understand that this is how everyone could stay so trapped. In the church of that tradition, we all dress the same, look the same, we all believe the same because no one dared to ask the questions. And it goes beyond religion. We are a society that prides itself in our individuality and in our choices. And you look outside even at today's teenagers and they all look the same. They all dress the same. They have all the same apps. They have all the same ambitions. And there's not a drop of individuality or self-awareness out there. Do you know what this leads to? Living in an insane asylum is what this leads to. No creativity. And I'm not just picking on teenagers. Adults are worse. Teenagers at least have time to change their minds. Most adults can't. So what kind of questions are we to ask? They're not hard ones necessarily. But I started to ask them in, in, in my church, and you should ask them yourself. Why am I here in this place, in this community? Does it truly express what I need from faith? What do I really believe? And why do I believe those things? Who taught me to believe this way? Do those beliefs still work in the world that I find myself? When you fail to ask basic questions like this, there is no self-knowledge, no individuality, no imagination, no growth. There is only reinforcement of the status quo. And whether you know it or not, religion likes to, to, to reinforce the status quo. We don't want too much to change because we've got everything sorted out. And the person that starts asking questions quickly finds themselves on the outside looking in. I'll make a comparison. Do you know what happens to a family when the addict in the family finally gets well? Oh, daddy quit drinking. Now we're going to be a happy family. Probably not. Mama don't need her pills anymore. Everything's going to be great. Maybe eventually. Do you know what happens to families when somebody in the house gets sober? The family gets blown to hell. Do you know why? Because there are rules. And at least when daddy was drunk, we knew what was going to happen. When daddy starts searching his soul, it's there in the 12 steps. When daddy conducts that fearless moral inventory, when daddy begins to ask God to take away his shortcomings, when daddy sets out to start making amends, these are all in the 12 steps, with those that he has hurt, he starts growing up. And suddenly, this individual who was so predictable, and we had built our life around his illness, is, certainly, is, is suddenly getting well. Now we all have to get well. And not every family is able to sustain that. I'm telling the truth. And there are addicts here today that they thought when they would get sober, it would save their family, and the actual opposite thing happened. Religions can function just like that. Don't ask too many questions. Don't stir the pot. If you start asking all those questions, I'm not sure 
I'm not sure you'll like the answers. I'm not sure that our religious structure can contain you any longer if you come to conclusions that don't match how we do things. So one more word from Hollis, and I'll pick up on this theme next week. God willing, diving headlong into Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Here's Hollis. We do not rise in the morning, look in the mirror while brushing our teeth and say to ourselves, today I will do the same stupid things which I've been doing for years. <laughs> Isn't that great? But more often than not, we indeed do the same stupid things. And why? Usually when we smoke it out, it comes down to the possibility that someone somewhere might be unhappy with us. So many adults, many of them highly accomplished in the outer world, suffer from a lack of permission to really be themselves, to live the life that really wishes to be expressed through them. Yet, you must learn to truly live. You, for the only person present at every moment, in every scene of the long-running soap opera you call your life, is you. You cannot continue to blame others for what has happened to you. You are truly, irrevocably responsible for your own life. Grow up. Step into the largeness of your journey. See that continuing to live a life that is not your own is a betrayal of your own soul.